Poros, the bros' throat, you droping owners, welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. If this is your first podcast, maybe go back and listen to an earlier episode. I have a wonderful treat for you this week. Returning to the podcast is the magnificent Mancon Megan. He's a documentary maker, he's a writer, he's a folklorist, he's an etymologist of the Irish language, and he's someone I just adore speaking to. I love speaking to Mancon because we're both curious about the exact same things and I love checking in with Mancon every six months or every year and finding out what he's been up to and what adventures he's been on and I always come away learning something new and also Mancon is someone I check in with when I'm reading about Irish mythology or Irish folklore and I check in with him because of his understanding of the Irish language. I don't speak the Irish language, unfortunately. Had a bit of a shitty time in school when I should have been learning it, and I just haven't found the time as an adult to relearn the Irish language. So Mancon does speak the Irish language fluently, and because of this, he has an understanding of Irish mythology and Irish folklore that goes far beyond what I can grasp by simply reading English translations. He goes right back to the words and what they mean and the roots of words. So we had we had a free-form conversation. We had a conversation about Irish mythology, folklore, the relationship and importance of Irish mythology with the ecosystem, with the environment, with forests. And also, Mancon recently spent time in Australia where he was welcomed by Aboriginal Australian people so that they could exchange knowledge between Irish folklore and Aboriginal folklore and to find the commonalities between the two. Mancon has a new book coming out in September which is called Wolfmen and Waterhounds and it's about the myths, monsters and magic of Ireland. I think it's directed at younger readers. But check out any of Mancon's books, like 32 Words for Field or Banshees, Fingers and Other Irish Words for Nature. And his podcast, The Almanac of Ireland. Check out anything Mancon is doing because he's a a very fascinating person who's incredibly passionate about what he does. So let's go straight into the chat. So Mancon, thank you so much for coming back onto the podcast. I don't even really have a plan for today. I... I think this is your fourth time or something being on the podcast and I I just like ringing you up whenever and just finding out what the fuck you're up to. <laughs> uh, I We've had such a great chats, but each chat we've had has made me think about things differently afterwards. So oh, fantastic. I, yeah, I get enriched. Um, the first thing I want to ask you about is you do have a new book coming out, right? Is it September, is it? Exactly, yeah, towards the end of September. Yeah, it's like a, a picture book, an illustrated book. Yeah, because I just had a quick look at, you sent me um, a, a look in advance, and it looks really interesting. You're having a crack at mythology this time, Irish mythology. Yeah, exactly. So if, you know, if the first book I was doing, I was looking at all the insights that are in the Irish language. And then I did, I did sort of a, a children's book of that, uh, of that called Tree Dogs and Banshee Fingers, looking at the particular nature words and how nature words in Irish make us see things in a different way. 
um, just because of the way our, our ancestors used to look at nature. They looked at it almost like a child. So like a duanala, you know, is a spider. Mm-hmm. And duanala means it locks of the wall. So they were obviously just staring at things and thinking, this is wow. what reminds me of it. Or like, or like how, a, you know, a granog is a, is a, is a hedgehog. So granog, it could mean like little ugly things. So they just thought this, it was just yeah, this little Ugly is grania, isn't it? Or, or exactly. Gran, groin is groin and then grana is ugly. Yeah. Do you know what I find interesting there about hedgehog in particular, right? Go on. Hedgehogs were brought here by the Normans. Huh. Yeah, they, we didn't have hedgehogs. They were bought, brought here by the Normans in the uh, 11th century because they used to eat them. They used to eat hedgehogs. So I find that interesting that because... To call it a little ugly thing, there's a little hint of contempt there. Yeah, like yeah. A sp- spiders are ugly too, but a spider's been there all the time. It's this thing on the wall. There's respect, but now you have this new little animal that's part of an invading army, and now all of a sudden it's it's an ugly little thing. And I like that. I like what that reveals about th- this is this is a colonizer's animal. That's beautiful. That is gorgeous. Yeah, I never thought about that. Huh. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, so, it makes sense. It, it makes does. sense. It, do, it does, and yeah, and I just love the way that yeah, they, that we drop all these hints and codes into our past into into words, and we don't even know we use the word every day. We don't think actually someone was trying to communicate something about about a concept or about something that was important to them. They just dropped it into the word. Is that very unique for the Irish language? I don't think. No, I don't think so. I think languages do that. I think people. I mean, humanity. All they're trying to do is keep is amass the sort of the, the group wisdom of their of their people and then bring it forward and they do it in every way i think they put it into landscape they put it into words they put it into story um but yeah and so but after i'd looked at language i thought okay well actually there's even more in london knowledge in the landscape so that was like you know the last book i think we were talking about was listening to land speak mm-hmm. looking at the knowledge that's in the landscape but then i wanted to do a sort of an illustrated kids view of that book you know version of that and I decided I was going to look at the portals and thresholds in the landscape because that's the one thing that is so clear in Ireland. There are these, you know, there's so many ways of getting to the underworld or the other worlds everywhere, mm-hmm. whether it's through rivers or ring forts or old or just caves or caverns or even just time warps in, in the landscape. And so I just collected maybe about 18 or 20 of these around Ireland and put them put them in this illustrated book, which calls which. Ooh, wolfmen and water dogs. Um, and what's weird is I've just listed 18 of them, okay? And I can probably guarantee there's nobody in Ireland who's been to all 18 of those places. No, no. Genuine. I mean, I mean, because like, I saw with the book, you went county by county. So, so is, is it correct to say with the book? So you've gone county by county and what you're searching for are uh, mythological sites that have a connection with the other world. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Places that our ancestors said either spirits came through or humans could pass back to the other world. And in fact, you know, they're, they're everywhere. They're every single parish. It's so hard to, to pin them down. But as you said, I decided to do a, a, a verse, a deshal, a journey, a, a sunrise journey around Ireland, going to some of these key sites. And how many of these, these sites then became Christian sites? Hmm. Probably, probably about uh, about sixty, seven, eighty percent of these. Like it's weird, but you know, every well, every well was, as we talked about in the previous previous podcast, was an entranceway to another world. And probably ninety five percent of those were Christian. St. Mm-hmm. Patrick purposely went and Christianized them. Um, so it does make sense. Like if these are the areas that are 
our sort of our pagan ancestors worshipped and knew they could access that obviously the church is going to come in and say, oh no, Jesus and the Virgin Mary can come through those those places too. Because something I've been thinking about a lot recently, um, whenever I, I, my interest in mythology is always from a climate perspective. I, I always look at uh, mythology as a product of the human animal. And I, I think that mythology is... It exists in humans to keep us in line with systems of biodiversity. That that's why I that's what I think the nature's intention for mythology is. You have these humans here, and they have language, and they create this mythology about the environment because ultimately, what it does is it keeps us in a regenerative, respectful way with the environment. It makes it something to be feared rather than to be exploited. You get me? Yeah, yeah, totally. And a something about. I think Christianity was real bad for the environment. And I, I tell this is just a little hot take I'm working on, but the early church, right? The, I'm talking first, second century uh, Christian church. They really didn't like demons. They were, they, they, the demons were a big part of early Christianity. Demons as in angels that had fallen from hell. Yeah. And all throughout Christendom, so all of Europe, all of the Middle East, as Christianity spread, obviously what Christianity was coming up against was paganism. And pagan sites tended to be a, very much about nature, connected with an outdoor site. And in the early church, consecration became a thing, creating an indoor building so that you could bless this and protect it from demons. And the church, wherever it went, would see something like a holy well or a holy tree. And it doesn't necessarily have to be in Ireland, anywhere around Europe. And they said, no, that's wrong. This outdoor nature shit, that's where demons have freedom. We need to build a little church, consecrate it, bless it. And the only thing demons are afraid of is, is Christ, the blessing of Christ. And I see that as a moment where humanity demonized nature effectively and fetishized buildings. Lovely, lovely. Yeah. But even, you know, do you remember that according to Pliny and Caesar and all, they said that the place that our ancestors worshipped, in other words, the, the Druids of the Celtic people were in these nemata or nemat a nematon or a nemata, which is like a sacred grove uh, or clearing in Manian and Oakwood. But it could also When you be mentioned Pliny there now, are you talking about Pliny speaking about Ireland? Yeah, Pliny the Elder, yeah. exactly. The historian and geographer who would have written about Ireland in, the, I think, the second century. Did his dad write the world's first encyclopedia? No, no, Pliny the Elder is the older fella, so he wrote the world's first encyclopedia, didn't That's he? That's right, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, Pliny the Younger wasn't as great a, a scholar as him. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, he was just so curious about the world. And, you know, he included places in Ireland um, that were important. So back then, there was some sort of some sites in Ireland that they thought were important enough that one, Grianon and Alec, Grianon's fort up in up outside Derry. So it made it as far as Rome. They knew about this in Rome. Exactly, exactly. And then, you know, but then and Ptolemy was the other great mapper of the world. And he yeah. was from Alexandria and Egypt. So when you're talking about Rome, you're talking as much about Northern Africa too, because, you know, the Mediterranean was a small pond that they were going across. So Pliny, Pliny yeah. was born AD 23. So Pliny was born 23 years after the birth of Christ. So within his lifetime, he was interested in Ireland and knew about Ireland as, as a, a pagan place. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, and he was particularly, I mean, particularly they were interested in those, those Celtic groups of Northern Europe and they were the same, like the ones that were in Britain, in Ireland and Northern France. 
they seem to have the same practices. And they, he was the one who was saying that these they worshipped in these oak groves. Well, he didn't actually mention oak, but it was groves in big woodlands and it's considered to be oak. And so, you know, then we come to uh, to, to, to like you, well, you, you take a, a leap a thousand years and you see those big Gothic cathedrals. And what are they? But basically stone manifestations of oak forests, yeah. you know, these oh huge trunks and the branches coming up in the middle and meeting in the center. So it's always I like. I never thought of it that way. I always saw churches as more of a cave thing. But now that you explain it with the huge big uh, pillars in the middle, it is quite foresty. Yeah. So probably it started with recreating a cave and then. But maybe it was like within their DNA. They weren't even um, aware that their ancestors 2,000 years ago had sought these groves in, in big forests to do their ceremonial rituals. And then they just, you know, they instinctively, they recreated them. But then the other amazing thing is the early church in Ireland, it's all about oak trees. So, you know, obviously St. Patrick is the main man, but then Colum Killa in Derry. Where is he? He's in Derry, Derry or Dira, mm-hmm. which means oak tree. And the, even... Even like Cullum Quilla, his name, Cullum the Dove of the Quill of the Woodland. Okay. The, the Dove of the Woodland. And then Bridget, where is she? She's in Kildara, in Kildare. Kildara, the church. That's, you know, Kill and Quill are different. Quill can be a church and it can be uh, a woodland. But they're Kildara, the church in the oak woodland. And then the centre of Cullum Kill in the south was in Doro. And what does Doro mean? Daravog. It means the plain of the oak tree. So all of these early Christian sites are still trying to say, Actually, these are sites connected to a clear, an oak, an oak um, clearing or an oak cathedral, an oak uh, spiritual center in the forest. So when we're speaking about early Irish Christianity there, we're talking in the region of 1500 years ago. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. something I'd love to ask you about, and, and this is even, are you familiar with the writer Liam O'Flaherty? I am. Yeah. So, like, I was reading a lot of Liam O'Flaherty recently. Now, he's not that long ago. Liam O'Flaherty was writing in about 1920 onwards. And he, Liam O'Flaherty was from the Aran Islands, and he wrote a hell of a lot about nature. And something that broke my heart when I was reading Liam O'Flaherty's stories was when he spoke about how many animals that he would see in his environment, it felt like he was lying. He would uh, he would talk about looking at a lake in, you know, 1920 and this lake bubbling with fish on the surface. And me as someone in 2023, I was like, you're talking out of your arse, man. You're exaggerating. And that made me feel really sad because I don't think he was lying. I think there actually were that many animals 100 years ago that this was the reality he was writing about. And when you speak there about the early Irish church, and all the woodlands. I mean, do you get a sense when you read this stuff from 1500 years ago that we're talking about an Ireland that looked differently because we had more forests? Yeah, without doubt. Like, I mean, you know, the, the, as you, you know, you used, used to look at woodlands in the podcast before, how there were periods yeah. where we had more and then less and then more and less. But we, I mean... I mean, we're, we're not, a rainforest. We're supposed to be a rainforest. That's what and, Ireland is supposed to be. And that's only and that's only an insight that we've only got really in the last ten years. It's been amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. The, the the work about realizing this Atlantic, this temporal or Atlantic rainforest, and the work that Home Tree is doing to regenerate it and and on Dalton there. But yeah, like I mean, they say that actually a hundred years ago was almost the lowest point of our woodland because you know since then we had the. You know, they're from the 1920s on, Arthur Griffith and Sinn Féin were really determined to, to replant the, the island. But mm-hmm. there were still places, 
there wasn't obviously big woodlands, but there were still those river valleys that had kept, um, you know, that had kept some of the old growth alive. Because it was difficult to extract the trees. Exactly. I was up in San Francisco and there was, I was in a beautiful redwood forest up in the mountains and they said straight up the only reason this redwood forest exists is it was too awkward to take the wood out. That's it, exactly. So it's called, you know, in Canada and the States, they're called the watersheds, protect the watersheds. And it's the same. So I'm involved in this charity home tree in County Clare. We've just bought like 270 acres of the Mom Valley in, in, in Galway. And it looks wow. in Connemara, just to, to rewild. But because you can't say reforest because we're not, you can't come in. So we have the only, the biggest organic native tree nursery in Ireland. I didn't know about this, Mancon. Tell me about this. So it's called Home Tree. It's called Home Tree. Where do you yeah. get your funding? How do you get money to buy a, a lot of land? Uh, so we were st- we c- came out of so this is where we came out of it in, in we started up in in Enniskillen in County in County Clare and we started really small. We just gathered whatever trees we could, we, you know, whatever money we had to buy a few patches in County Clare, and then just people got behind us, and some mm-hmm. organisations did, and um, now we're we're sort of we're we're just putting out the call for for, for I mean it's kind of hard because every time you buy a woodland, it's going to cost thousands. Like, you know, this one, probably 750 grand. We have that. Then we're, we're looking at an, another land. In fact, you saw it this week, there's been a lot of talk about um, the Connor Pass. Yeah. yeah like 10 million. A, a, yeah, exactly. 1,500 kilometers, 1,500 um, um, acres. But um, so we're always looking, how do we find these? In fact, in some ways, there there is money there, but it's to try and find, you can get money from benefactors, which have no strings mm-hmm. attached. Attached. Then there's other there's corporate clients who are offering us money, but then you have to look at greenwashing. Then there's of like, course. yeah, there's even like the government, like you know, the government has been really helpful to us and really supportive of us. They can't be giving us money immediately. Um, Actually, here, here's a question there regarding the greenwashing because I'm on. going, I'm going. Why the fuck would a corporation want to give Mancon a lot of money to build a forest and they can't make money off it? I'm assuming there is that certain corporations they could make a donation like this and then that goes against their carbon footprint or something. Yeah, I mean, the one thing, you see, yeah, like what they would love is that they would buy, the, give us money to buy the land and we'd say they were sequestering a certain amount of carbon. Now, Home Tree, this okay. organization yeah. does not do that. We don't go anywhere near carbon just because you can't make claims like that. You can't make promises. There's going to be really good credits come, uh, come along stream. Like, so at the moment, carbon credits, that idea is too simple. It's probably been thrown out the, the window. But now the next thing they're moving on to is biodiversity credits, where mm-hmm. it's not just, you know, you're managing to keep carbon, how much diet biodiversity are you keeping but the next step again is social and biodiversity credits so what social impact are you doing by planting this woodland or rejuvenating this woodland and how do you measure that like in some parts of the world mangrove woodland a mangrove forest yes. along a coastline will protect all of the people on the coastline from sudden storms so yes. you have a guaranteed social benefit to those people um in Colombia at the same time, if you stop, well, even in Ireland, if you plant woodlands that are stopping floods, that are going to stop mm-hmm. cities becoming flooded, that's a definite social benefit. But it's all really complex and it's going to take computers and it's going to take think tanks and groups to come together with a really good way of pricing the benefits of woodland. So for the moment, we don't. We, if, a, if, a, yeah. if a corporation comes to us, we say, we're not going to give you any bio- guaranteed biodiversity you know, um, prize or value on the land. But you're welcome to tell clients that you're supporting this yeah. woodland. But what I was going to say, let's say with these 270 acres in in, um, in Connemara that we've just bought, 
like it's stripped. It's absolutely bare, shorn upland that had too much sheep on it for too long. So we're okay, going Okay, so we're talking Connemara because I'm exactly. thinking with Connemara, I view Connemara as, as quite barren. That's what comes to me when I think of Connemara. I do think of barren, but also I'm aware a lot of that barrenness is because sheep, which are not wild, they're domesticated, have just eaten everything. So you're left with a strange nope. little desert. Exactly, exactly. And we might say now, okay, we don't have any sheep on the woodland, on the uplands as we did. And that's fair. But the fact is the, the uplands are in such, such weak condition now that it doesn't take many sheep to go in and just strip any little sapling that's going to grow. So, you know, it's just be, the, the, the system is so weak that, it, that it's hard. So as I said, when we buy this land, we want to restore it. But you, mm-hmm. that does not mean going buying a load of, you know, tr- as oak saplings, bringing them in from Europe. Of, of of risky provenance, we want to get those oaks and the you know, what of the alder and the rowan or whatever we're going to plant up there from really old growth trees in Ireland. So Irish, we're, yeah. yeah. We're going to collect the seeds ourselves. Have this organic native seed nursery, but even that, ideally, you're not doing that. Ideally, you're just going to the watersheds. And so, we, if we walk this whole going to the watersheds, what does that mean? So we, we walk the 270 acres. It all looks barren, but there are these places at the creeks or at the streams oh, wow. where in the left of a rock, you'll find one little willow bush or a hawthorn bush or one alder or a mountain ash that has managed to survive. And then, Oh my God, that's beautiful and very depressing at the same time. Yeah, but it, it, it happens really quickly because beneath that soil will be the original mycelium of the there ancient woodland that was there. So all you need to do is keep some grazers away from that and all of those spores and seeds are ready to 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 to, to, to take over again, and it can happen very quickly. And you know, within ten years, you'd be amazed by the impact it can have. I'd so, love for you to speak a little bit about that, there, Mancon, because that's really interesting what you said there, and people might know might not know about it. So what you said there, so you're looking for watersheds, so you're going to go around this barren area in Connemara, and you're going to search and go there's a spot there that nobody has fucked with and there's a few native trees. But what you also mentioned there was you're interested not only in the tree, but the fungal network underneath that tree, the network of mycelium and mushrooms. Can you tell us about that and why that's important? Yeah, because yeah. I suppose we are beginning to realize the beauty about science now, science for you know 300 years has been absolutely saying every just look at what you can look under the microscope. That is the only thing. Mm-hmm. In other words, atomize everything, break everything into categories. And only in the last 20 years, it seems every single scientific field is realizing the unified theory. It's only about when everything is part. It's, it's, how, it's how a whole system, a biodiverse system is connected to everything. So we look at a tree and we think a tree is important. But let's say those redwoods in, in South America, uh, sorry, mm-hmm. in, in San Francisco, what's just as important is the incredible um, root systems and mycelium systems that are giving and the, uh, that are underneath the soil and this vast array of bacteria and interconnected species that are feeding the, the soil and that, that are feeding the mycelium, which are, as you say, this fungal network, which mm-hmm. are then in turn feeding the roots that are then feeding the trees. Um, and just to simplify this, and yeah. you can correct me if I'm wrong, I'm just thinking of listeners. Mm-hmm. Trees basically have their own internet. Or if you don't want to use the word internet, for me, what I view the, the mycelium structure underneath the forest, that's how... That, that, that it's the social network yeah, of a yeah. forest. Uh, Communication happens amongst these plants and trees uh, regarding resources, chemicals, nutrients, predators. Think, a forest yeah. does communicate yeah. with itself 
and all the things in that forest. And this is what the mycelium does. Does that sound right? Exactly. That's right. So there was a beautiful book called The Hidden Life of Trees by Peter Velleben, which cast a, a, a clear eye on this. Some way we've gone a little bit too far in this. So scientists, again, 10 years in the last 10 years have realized some of these concepts like that there was a mother tree and a mother tree could mm-hmm. decide what nutrients and sort of healing properties she could give out to other trees in the woodland and she could pick which tree she could give and not to do others. So basically the trees were working, as you say, in this idea of the worldwide web of, of mm-hmm. all of them feeding each other. Now, some of those claims have been disproven a little in the last five years. So realizing, okay, not that they're not true, but we just don't have the proof to realize exactly how much each tree is communicating with each other. Mm-hmm. But definitely it, we're realizing that actually there is a lot more going on, both uh, mainly through the root system because the roots then are connected to the mycelium and the mycelium is a totally different thing. It's the network of funguses. It's when you, you know, lift up an old stone or uh, dig in the soil and you might see all these little um, these little white strands of mushroomy mm-hmm. type strands and they are they're bringing sugars from different plants, but they're also seeming to communicate knowledge about a pest that'll be in one tree um, mm-hmm. and maybe probably encoding that into a chemical, into a, a maybe a, a sweet or a sour or some chemical that the other trees read. It's all like it's a new field and they haven't, some of the more popularized books have taken leaps that haven't really been supported by science. But what we do know is that, yeah, there's a lot more going on. And so a tree is not just a tree. It's a whole family under the ground, above communication with everything and if we want healthy woodlands we need to support that whole allow that whole um complex interrelation uh continue and for that it's just it's you know the old days had i had had i been involved in the tree charity 20 years ago you would have just planted a tree in the soil and left it yes and what what i find fascinating about the about all this mancon is it also ties in with your work around mythology it ties in with your work around folklore you just said there you know speaking about the mycelium structure in a soil and how communication happens within an ecosystem under the soil between plants. And you said there, this is all new. And it's like, in a way it is, but also it's not. It's deeply pagan. And one of the things, Western rationalism, and uh, like which I would include Christianity with, the type of Western rational thinking real evidence-based empirical thinking which you would have accumulated with the enlightenment where we get modern science which obviously is amazing and it's incredible and brilliant also too it it kind of it excludes stuff that sounds a bit bonkers what you're talking about there regarding the you know trees can communicate with an underground fungal network that sounds mad that sounds airy-fairy. That sounds like something you immediately want to rubbish. It sounds like it's not evidence-based. And now we're finding out, science is going, actually, I think this might be true. And I reckon long, long ago, they kind of knew this. Yeah, yeah. Well, just think of the word dr- druid. For druid, druid means druvid. Dru is the oak tree, or it also means the center axis, the center spine. And vid is knowledge of wisdom. So it's the, the the oak tree or the central spine or axis or 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 axis mundi which could access wisdom, and so mm-hmm. that's basically it's the same concept as the spine in yoga. The druid, the oak tree, and the spine are the same, and the axis mundi. The axis mundi means the axis of the world. You know the the center point to which everything connects. And the way the reason that was considered to be an oak tree 
or a sacred magic tree because mm-hmm. the oak tree has its trunk in this world, its roots in the other world, and then its leaves branching up into the heavens, into the celestial orb. And you can wow. either call that the spiritual heaven or just the sun. It, it was a concept, it was like an understanding of photosynthesis. It was an understanding that our energy came from the sun, the whole energy of the universe, of this, at least, yeah, of um, this, 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 this particular solar system comes from the sun. It feeds into the trunk, it feeds into all of us, and then uh, it goes down into your earth, and then the earth brings up its mycelium, its wisdom from the center. So this center, the concept of a druid, the concept of yoga, the spine in yoga, which, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the same idea. They come from the same root. And druid is as much a, a Sanskrit word as a, an, an early Irish word, um, are all connected. Everything was about the tree. And you remember in Ireland, the center point, talking of um, my book about portals and thresholds, the mm-hmm. center threshold in Ireland is Ishnach, is the center of the hill of Ishnach between Mullingar and Atlo, the center point, the navel of Ireland. So it was the point to which all of the energy could come from the different realms, from the above realm, the middle realms, and from the below below realms. And they came through, uh, there was a tree, the center tree, you know, Billa means the center, a uh, sacred tree. So every region had its Billa. I think we might have, we, we talked about those before, but the center sacred tree of all the trees in Ireland was Billa Ishnik, the oak tree. or the it's, Who decided, that, was this because this particular tree was clearly old and massive? There's a there's a birth story about that tree, and it's that um, a magical being called Tre Ullingd Tre Ucker. And now that's just it sounds like a like a, a beautiful word, but when mm-hmm. it's hard for us to decipher. But Tre Tre Ucker Tre Ucker Nilsan Ucker Ucker is the Irish mm-hmm. for key. So the triple key or the the three keys Tre Ullingd Ulling is a word we'd understand in modern Irish. It means fulling, t- to endure or to suffer, mm-hmm. but also to, k- to carry a, bo- a burden. So it's the mm-hmm. tray uckle, a tray ulling, the, the strong burden of the three keys or the three keys of the tree of the strong burden or the strong sufferer. Now, what that means, none of us will know, but I think if all of us went for a big walk or took some mushrooms or went in meditating, mm-hmm. we might each get our own insight of what's trying to be communicated in this magical figure that brought the magical trees to Ireland. Okay, so this man, Trey Olling, Trey Ocker, it said that he wandered, he came to Ireland, he was coming from where the sun sets in the far, far west, and he was on his way east to where he had heard that a man had been crucified on a Axis Mundi tree, on a sacred cross tree uh, in the east, in Palestine. So obviously, mm-hmm. obviously that's just a, a, you know, a Christian addition to it. But he arrives in Brunaboyna, which is the, you know, the most spiritual center of Ireland. And Angus, the great God, is there. And he welcomes, and Angus says, what are you doing here? And uh, all of the community are petrified because this trailing trail or Ucker is a giant. He's so big that the entire sky is beneath his, his legs. Mm-hmm. Okay? So it's a figure who's so big that the entire sky goes under his legs. And all they're worried about is um, how they're going to feed it, how the community is going to feed this giant. Because, you know, the whole idea among pre-modern societies is hospitality. Anybody turns up, you need to look after them for at least three days. Um, and they think, how can they even feed them for a day? And he's, they, and Treoling Treoker says, don't worry about me. I have this sacred bough in my hand, this sacred branch. And on the branch, are, there, was, um, there was an apple, there was a hazel, and there was uh, an oak. Um, was an acorn so an acorn an apple and a hazel and he says this is all I ever need and this is all you will ever need 
So basically, it's a it's the origin story of the coming of the woodlands to Ireland. Wow. And uh, so he could feed himself on the nut, but the that hazel that was going to feed him from pr- give him protein, but also was given to give him wisdom. It was the original quill treatment that we talked about the the um, the hazel that uh, uh, that bubbled up through the waters. And mm-hmm. I I haven't. I need to still listen back to when you talk about this idea of the bubbling water. You know, in, in America, the sparkling water, like the idea of yeah. our wells, the whole thing. Yeah, the the rid the thing that gave them the power was that there was these bubbles of insight bubbling through them. And, you know, as we've as we've realized now that fishermen off the west coast of Ireland know that there's wells still off the coast of Cork and Kerry that bubble up from beneath the Atlantic Ocean and mm-hmm. give them life-giving water. So anyway, this idea of the the, the bubbles um, is a key thing. So your man, Trey Tre, Tre Ucker, Trey Ulling, or Trey Ulling, Trey Ucker, has this branch with the, the, the fruit of the apple tree that is going to give him sweetness, the protein of the hazel and also the wisdom of the hazel and then the acorn that will give all, you know, the reason that the oak was the most important tree was because it gave you the strongest uh, wood for making barrels, for making boats, for making houses, but it also mm-hmm. gave you the tanning, its skin, its its uh, bark for tanning and for dyes. And it gave you the oak gall, the little round balls that grow on the oak, which are used for ink. So all of the great books wow. uh, of, you know, the, Manuscripts were all made with ink from the oak. So the oak was not only spiritually important, but it's it's what you just spoke about there when we were speaking about uh, your project with rewilding. Yeah. What is the social impact? So the social impact of an oak tree to ancient Irish people was massive. It wasn't just a spiritual tree. This helped people survive and live their lives. Exactly, yeah. Let's just pause the conversation right there now because I'd like to have a little ocarina pause before we continue. I'm in my home studio, so I'm not in the office recording this week. I'm in my studio, so I do actually have my ocarina. So I'm going to play my ocarina here. Now, if you've got a dog, the dog might get startled by this ocarina. But I'm going to play my ocarina and you're going to hear an algorithmically generated advert. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss not a very good ocarina shit ocarina this week lads I haven't played I haven't played this ocarina in fucking ages the OG ocarina is lost 
I'm down a number of ocarinas, whatever's happening. Someone's coming in and stealing my ocarinas. I had about ten of them. I'm only left with one. So that was the ocarina pause. You would have heard an advert. I do the pause so you don't get suddenly startled by an advert. But support from this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page. Patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, if it brings you solace, fun, distraction, entertainment, if you use it to fall asleep, whatever reason you listen to this podcast for, please consider paying me for the work that I do. Because this podcast is my full-time job. This is how I earn a living. This is how I pay my rent for my office. It's how I pay all my bills. This podcast is how I operate as a professional artist. This podcast wouldn't be possible without patrons, without without it being directly funded by the listener. It simply wouldn't be possible. I wouldn't be able to deliver it each week. So if you enjoy it, please consider paying me the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. That's all I'm looking for. Price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. But if you can't afford that, don't worry about it. You listen for free. Listen for free. Because the person who is paying is paying for you to listen for free. So everybody gets a podcast and I get to earn a living. Wonderful model based on kindness and soundness. My voice is slightly hoarse this week because I've been recording my audiobook. All week I've been recording my audiobook. So my voice is fatigued. Also directly funding this podcast and any independent podcast. The reason it's important to directly fund the podcast that you enjoy is it keeps... It means advertisers don't have any creative control. The reason television and radio is awful is because advertisers have control over the content. You can't have that when a podcast is independently funded. I can just tell advertisers to fuck off. I haven't done gigs in a few months. I think my last gig was like March. I've been laying off the gigs so that I could finish writing my book. But I'm back gigging, doing live podcasts. At the end of this month, on the 26th of August, I'm in the Cork Opera House for Cork Podcast Week, the Cork Podcast Festival. Come along to that gig that's going to be wonderful fun, Saturday night fun. Then on the 28th of August, I'm up in Dublin on Ficker Street. Fuck all tickets left for that. Like, literally under 10 tickets left for that. But that'll be an enjoyable gig. But if you can't get tickets for that Ficker Street gig, I am back in November for my official Irish book launch. So come along to that Vicker Street gig. Then, on the 1st of September, I'm over in Birmingham at the Mosley Folk Festival, if you're around for that. What else have I got here? Dunleary is sold out. I'm in Monaghan on the 30th of September, up at the Patrick Kavanagh Festival, the Kavanagh Weekend. And then, and these aren't on sale yet, but I'm going to tell you, I've got a UK tour in November to launch my book. I cannot wait to do this. Now, these tickets aren't on sale yet. They won't go on sale for another week, I believe. I think it's the 16th of August. But I'm going to tell you where I'm going to be gigging in the UK in November for my UK tour, right? And and I, I won't tell you the dates, but it is in November. London, Liverpool, Manchester, Coventry fucking promoter has me sounding like the Luftwaffe London Manchester Liverpool Coventry and then up in Scotland I'm doing Edinburgh alright so that's that's where I'm going to be gigging 
I didn't gig those places uh, the last time I toured. I want to gig some new places, especially Edinburgh. Usually when I gig Scotland, I gig Glasgow. I haven't been to Edinburgh in years, probably a decade. I don't think I've done a solo blind by show in Edinburgh yet. So I can't wait to come to Edinburgh in November. And the rest of the, look, Glasgow, who's missing there? I'm, I'm not going to Wales this time. A few places missing. I'll be back. All right. London, Manchester, Coventry, Liverpool, Edinburgh. That's what I'm doing in November. And I can't wait to do a podcast for the wonderful Kraken Tens. All right. Um, then Belfast on the 18th of November. You know the crack. All right. I'm doing all this because my book, my book Topographia Hibernica, my new collection of short stories that I've been writing for the past two fucking years that I can't wait to show you. That's coming out in November. So I'm doing this tour, which is half podcast tour, half book tour. So back to the chat with Mancon. And the second part of this is utterly fascinating because Mancon speaks about the time that he spent in Australia recently learning about the indigenous mythology and folklore there. He travelled there as a folklorist and he was invited by indigenous people to share stories and knowledge with them. Something I do want to flag is I am conscious that it's me and Mankan. Neither of us are indigenous Australian people and we're both speaking about indigenous Australian mythology. Mankan is someone who handles this with respect and he communicates knowledge that he has learned from spending time with Aboriginal people. But also I carry in my awareness that, you know, we got to be careful. You got to be, if you're not from another indigenous culture, you got to be careful when speaking about their mythology and their customs and their beliefs. Because even when you're, even when you have the best intentions, you can be colonial without even knowing it. The last time I toured Australia, which was before the fucking pandemic, just before the pandemic, I did speak to indigenous Australian people there and recorded podcasts. But then what happened? Big silly fucking Egypt. I put my recorder in my luggage and whatever happened on the flight, it zapped the hard drive. So I lost a load of fucking interviews from 2019. But when I do go back to Australia... Don't know when that will be. Hopefully next year. I will be speaking to some indigenous people. About mythology and culture. But I'm saying this in case any indigenous Australian people are listening. It is in my awareness. That myself and Mankan are not indigenous Australian people. Even though we're speaking about your mythology. And I hope we do it justice. And that we're respectful. And it's great. This is great. Neil McKitter of the book. Who wrote the book uh, Irish Trees. He had the idea, you look at America and the or Native Indians in America, First Nations people, the buffalo was their sacred animal and their most practical animal. And mm-hmm. it's, it, was, it, it was sacred because it was practical and it was practical because it was sacred. It was to, you know, the Native people could make everything from the buffalo, from the horns, the skin, the milk, the meat, in the same way as we could make everything from the oak. So it was our most practical and our most sacred. This is where I'm getting at with my, my little theory that... I believe mythology exists to keep humans in line with system of biodiversities. So if you have an oak tree and you have lots of stories about it and it's very, very important, then within those stories is a great respect. And when you have a great respect for an oak forest, 
you don't exploit it. You you work with it regeneratively. Yeah. No, without doubt, without doubt. Another one of the sites that I look at in, in this new book is is Loch Darina Darina Davadia in County Cork. Now, Loch Darina Davadia look just looks like a ridiculous name. And I don't even know how local people in this mm-hmm. sort of beyond Glengariff up up in the mountains, you have this place. But you translate in, that into Irish and immediately it becomes very clear to me. Loch Dudin on the Vo Yeag. So Loch the Lake Dudin, dear, it's that word oak again, of the little oak tree or the little oak wood on the Vo Yeag of the 12 cows. And so you okay. think, okay, so here we have the two central ideas of, of spirituality in Ireland, really the cow and the oak wood in the same place name. And there's a story attached to it that there was this magical cow who appeared out of this lake once to look after a woman in absolute need. So there was a woman whose husband had died and she had a rake of children and they were starving and she was in absolute penury and no one could help them. And the community were really worried about them. And suddenly mm-hmm. this magical cow emerges out of the lake and not only does she give her, does the cow give her, the woman and her family, endless milk, strong, life-giving milk, nutritious, rich, creamy milk, but, but the cow also um, gives 11 calves and each of those calves is just as nutritious and their dung feeds the soil. So mm-hmm. this family are suddenly gone from being dirt poor to being incredibly rich, incredibly wealthy. Their land is fertilized by the cow dung. They have milk. They have enough calves to sell to other families and to use as dowries. Until one day, the mother, uh, the old widow, she hits the cow. She beats the cow. And the cow is so startled by this that she lets out a whale and calls her other 11 calves back to her. And they all go back into the lake and drown themselves in the lake again. And without doubt, it's trying to communicate to people. Nature will give abundantly will give everything you need but if you abuse or mistreat nature she can leave on a spot and this is also you find stories like that too attached with a lot of holy wells like if you wash your clothes in a holy well the well can dry up like what what i find interesting when i was doing research on wells is is that wells are treated as as people almost you can offend a well you can piss a well off um if you if you fish from a holy well, I read that that will piss the well off. Um, if you bathe in a holy well, if you murder someone in a holy well, that the well will dry up and there's your fresh water gone. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've just, I've just finished, I made, a, I made an eight-part series for TG Carr about holy wells that I think is going to be broken. Fuck off, really? Not When's serious? that out? I don't know. I, th- I haven't heard. I thought it was going to be autumn, but I haven't heard any dates, so it might be s- spring now. But uh, yeah, as you Fair say... play like, the TG Carr, man. They make good shit. They really do, yeah. I mean, that's brilliant. To commission a programme, here's an eight-part TV series about holy wells in Ireland. I mean, we need that. Exactly, exactly. And there's a there's a lovely, um, there's a, 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 I'm just down in West Cork, but they, they got really excited. They have the most holy wells of anywhere in Ireland, in Cork. Yeah. And there's just a lovely new hardback book called, come out called The Holy Wells of, of Cork, which is gorgeous. But you know, so there's 3,000 holy wells in Ireland. There is no country in the world that has that amount of trees and not just, uh, well, sorry, and not just per head of people. You know, no country has 3,000 so, uh, sacred wells. And like, we and, do and know... And when you say wells, are you looking at this as well from a, from a, a geology point of view? Is it, str- like, as a well, effectively, it's, it's a natural spring that brings up minerals. That's what it is from a, a geologic point of view. Are we unique in having lots of that? Or, or you mean the fact that you put spiritual, these are spiritually important portals to the other world? 
Exactly. So we've 3,000 sacred wells. We probably had a lot more of them um, at mm -hmm. one point. But they were filled in aggressively as part of colonization too. Uh, the landlords would fill in a well, you know, they, they would right. really do this to offend people. Oh, that's, I mean, and you can imagine having us spend months going around the country filming wells, a lot of them you are, you're basically having to, you know, you know, bash back a load of brambles or oh my create a wall that was there. Everything is being done to try and forget these walls. Often, as you say, it's a developer wants to control that land. Like there's one in the yeah. Airside Retail Park up in Dublin. Oh, I'd say if you're a fucking developer, you shit your pants if there's a well there. That's like you're not building here, buddy. So I'd say they go out of their way to, to cover them up. Exactly, exactly, yeah. But it's amazing that so many have been kept alive and that so many are being revived. There's people, like, I mean, Cork, I said, was particularly amazing. There was a very, very good Facebook group over the last few years and people reviving and refinding ULs and opening them up again. And like, what's that? There's, there's no benefit. There's no financial benefit. What's, why are people doing that? They're feeling this thing that's rising from below us, this mm -hmm. awakening. Mm -hmm. Maybe the mycelium is coming and wanting to communicate and say, let's recreate this. this you're not going to get healthy water, woodlands unless you get healthy water streams. Oh, wow. I never thought of that. Oh, my God. So if you're rewilding an area, it is actually in your interest to, to bring back the holy wells, to bring back the natural springs. Exactly, exactly. Because Fuck me. And, you know, but in the burren, everything is, you know, the, the wells were often have these pesh, these serpents in them. Uh, mm -hmm. So, and the serpent would appear often on the, 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 the a particular day, a saint's day, often at either dawn or, or night. And that, that serpent was the energy force that would, you know, come out of, of the lake and sort of give its force. But uh, like, um, they were, they were, the serpent would appear from sometimes in one well and sometimes in another to show that they were connected, that you could get from mm -hmm. one otherworldly place. And there's this, this geographer um, who was, who has been doing research in that, in the bar and putting dye into a particular well and seeing where it would come up. Wow. And he was seeing where they connected, yeah. And so he was doing this for a while. And a few years ago, he put water into a well and he said, okay, next day he'd go and check another well to see how to come up. But it hadn't. It had actually, he opened, He was in a B&B, &B, opened up the front windows of beer, looking out at um, har the, the harbour in, in County Clare. And suddenly he saw his blue-green, his green dye right throughout the bay, right throughout the sea. So wow. the water he'd put into a well had gone down into his water system and then gone out to the Atlantic Ocean. And that was the first time we had this concept of why all of these supernatural wells in Ireland, like Cundas Well, are said to be beneath the Atlantic Ocean and how they bubble up their pure water of life. Because, of course, at some point, those wells go out underneath the ground, underneath the limestone that's off the Atlantic Ocean, and then bubble up there. Um, wow. So giving these sources of pure water... Uh, that the people would have on land, also to fishermen out at sea. So actually, you're not only uniting the rivers and the streams and the water systems with the forest, but actually they go out underneath the Atlantic and then come up through the Atlantic too, that everything is united. And the myths were trying to tell us these stories in in stories like Cunder's Well, like these supernatural wells that were said to be beneath the Atlantic Ocean and that, you know, the people who are seeking wisdom would go out and, and find them. That is amazing. Um... One thing I mean to ask you about, because I actually don't know the answer to this question, like werewolves in Ireland, because wolves is in the title of, of, of your new book. Werewolves, do we have uh, mythology around werewolves? So 
Both mermaids and werewolves, we're not very sure about. These could be things that came in with the Normans. Like these were, okay. the mermaids and, nor- and werewolves were big things in mainland Europe. And you could understand why in Europe, particularly like stories coming across from Germany and from Poland, where they really were, you know, massive packs of wolves were a big problem. And then in particular, murderous wolves. I mean, clearly we know we had wolves in Ireland, but not that idea of these And big- in the, the Nordic as well, that it had a lot of seals and those mad creatures in the sea, you know? Exactly, yeah. And the, I mean, both are very, well, particularly mermaids are really romantic concept. And so anything that's mm-hmm. very romantic, it tends to be, you know, the romance languages. Europe, mainland, like the, the, the Latin and the French were big into these love stories and everything and romantic ideas. Whereas Irish, our stories tended to be, they're more real or more gruesome or more. Well, I think that's the weather. I always, I just think <laughs> you're going to do more riding in ancient Greece. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, in Ireland, it's it's wet and grey and cold all the time, whereas in ancient Greece, it's just like, yeah, fuck it, what else are we going to do? Jesus, Irish mythology isn't very sexy compared to the mythology of other worlds. And if it's a sunny, bright place, I, I think just people want to ride more for crack. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, uh, the other thing is, though, we don't really know our mythology anymore. Oh, there's the other thing. Yeah, you're dead right. Purified by the 19th century church, actually. Yeah, you're dead yeah. right there. And so it's only in the next 10 or 20 years, we there's gonna those scholars are going to go in and give us a total different sense of what our stories were actually saying. What do you mean well, by that? Well, What's going to so happen in 10, 20 years? All the information is there. All the texts have, well, as you say, okay, some of them would have been cleansed by the church. But really, we have an enormous body of manuscripts, of early texts, that were translated with a particular mindset just mm-hmm. to show that either that it was all about strong men, you know, mm-hmm. particularly in the late 19th century, early 20th century, when there was an agenda, we were taking back our myths to create mm-hmm. a war of independence. And it was yes. brilliant that we picked Cú Cullen and we picked Finn, Finn McCool and these warriors who were willing to sacrifice themselves because that's what Oh, Patrick fuck, Pierce, never thought of that, man. Your rally and all want, yeah, they want to. But there's a whole new, particularly, you know, women are going to, like, you look back in the stories, even us with our, you know, you or me with our very limited knowledge, we look at the time we're that, we think, mm-hmm. actually, there's a powerful woman behind every one of those men. In fact, the women are setting the whole scene. They are, the men are just these, like, chess pieces on a board, and the women are actually mm-hmm. setting the whole thing. So we might be going back and seeing this, and like, you know, and, the key thing about Queen Maeve in the town of Okuna is no one could do anything. There was no king could be in the country without first having going into her bed and sleeping with her and her deciding that wow. he was up sexually. Holy fuck. I didn't know that at all. Yeah. And so none of this was overly emphasized. And there's a new you know, generation of scholars, hopefully now younger scholars, women and men are going to go in and actually refine the actual, the resonances and truth and other underlying currents in our stories. And I'm assuming yeah. that's happening in like UCC, the, the early medieval Irish literature department and stuff like that. People who can open these texts and read old Irish. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And something that really excited me was, um, you know, the, the only person who retold our stories recently was in 1994, Mary Heaney, in other words, Shemus mm-hmm. Heaney's wife, came out with a book, Over Nine Waves. It was the first retelling of the myths in decades mm-hmm. and it was a beautifully clean it was almost as if the new yorker had rewritten the stories and they're beautifully wow. told very clean and so she had done this a big service and, and so i have this the almanac of Ireland in my podcast and i have an interview with her i don't know so in the next few months but she had done this big service and you know then the there was this other woman who i've always heard about and never met until about three weeks ago called marion dean and marion mm-hmm. dean was going through the old stories like the birth pangs of Cú Chulainn. So there's a story of, of um, Cunnachor, the king, 
was riding out with his huntsmen and he saw that there was this flock of magical wild birds that were eating every single item ar around them. They were basically grazing the, the, the kingdom dry like locusts. And uh, they were magical birds and they were chained with golden chains or golden silver chains between them all. So the king sets his greatest hunters and they don't, they try and chase down these wild geese or wild ducks that are, that are eating away everything. But what that seems, that it's a, it's a, it's a poetic way of talking about winter. You know, there was a darkness is coming across the land and everything is dying and everything is being eaten back to the bare earth. Okay. So these gold and silver birds are, um, are winter. Cuchulain mm -hmm. goes up, follows them, gets lost and arrives in a magical house. And it's said mm -hmm. the magical house has this person called Dachtir in it. And anyway, it's, it, it's the birth story of Satanto, Cuchulain. But mm -hmm. Marion Dean, she's the first person to realize, no, this isn't just a farcical story about, about geese. It's the coming of winter. It's another nature story that you're talking about. You know, this is mm -hmm. trying to give information about how to live um, in a sustainable, respectful way with nature. And the woman in the house, Jachtira, Marion Dean's the first person to say, what does Jachtira mean? Tir, you know, means land, land. And mm -hmm. Jah is good. It's good mm -hmm. land. She's basically the mother earth. She's the mother earth. Kunachor comes in and few people try to sleep with her don't manage to have a healthy baby. And then when a farmer who is connected to the gods and connected to the spiritual world and honoring nature, when he sleeps with her, um, Kukhund is born. So I got so excited by this, Marion Dean, because I just thought the first person who's going back to the stories and realizing they're not just for kids, they have wisdom in them. Um, and then I realized Marion Dean is the wife of Shemus Dean. So the two, mm -hmm. the great poets in Ireland who set up Field Day, you know, the, the center mm -hmm. of poetry in Northern Ireland, against, this is in Derry, during the Troubles, Shemus Heen, Shemus, uh, Shemus Heen, and, and Brian Friel. Mm -hmm. And now the wives of two of them, of Shemus Dean and Shemus Heen, are actually doing the key work on re, on re, or decoding and demystifying the Irish mystery, the Irish sort of mythology. And hopefully they are the first generation. Um, I mean, Marion Dean is now in her 80s. Mm -hmm. So, but my hope is they're going to spark this new younger generation. And from now on in, we, we will get a whole deeper sense of our myths of how, just as you're saying, how they're connected with nature, how they were trying to tell people to live in a way that was not only sustainable and in honoring of nature, but in honor of the spirits too. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping the um, future is bright. And like I said, my, my, my big thing with this is to bring this shit back so that people have a respect for the land, a respect and a fear, and to do it in a way that's, that's modern and, and like, I can't, I don't think I don't mean let's bring it back so that people are superstitious again or believing in pish ogs, but to understand the mythology of the land and how it relates to biodiversity and that these aren't just stories, that this is the these are the stories of this particular land and you must listen to them. Like I did a podcast recently about um. Yellowstone National Park, you know about it in Yellowstone where they brought the wolves back, yeah. Yeah, I do. And the rivers changed change the course of the rivers. Yeah. yeah. So so I did this podcast and I I told people in Yellowstone, um, the the land was fucked. They didn't know what was happening, they didn't know why it was like this. Species were dying off. So they brought back wolves, and then the wolves changed the behavior of the deer, and then the deer stopped uh spending too much time around the riverbeds and destroying the roots of trees. And just by bringing the wolf back, they transformed an ecosystem. And then what I did is I looked at the mythology of the indigenous people local to that area. And they were the Crow Nation. 
Mm. And if you look at the fucking mythology of the Crow Nation, who's the most important animal? The fucking wolf. Mm. So yeah. they had it. The Crow Nation knew it. Their most important animal was the, the wolf within the, the Crow Nation's um, origin mythology. The wolf creates everything. And mm. that could be thousands of years old. And then scientists in the 90s go, oh, let's bring back the wolf with modern science. And then the Crow Nation are going, told you so. Mm, you know, and it, it is fucking beautiful and you see it everywhere. And I tell you one thing as well that really that got me thinking about this. It's 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 something that you said to me in a podcast that we did is you. You said that mythology is, is the, the fruiting body of the human unconscious. Mm. And I keep viewing that as is the mushrooms and the mycelium. And when people take magic, like a lot of mythology, I reckon, does come from people doing mushrooms. And when you have an, not even mushrooms, when you have any experience, even meditation, and I know this from my own personal experience, what people always report back is I got a sense that everything's connected. Whether you meditate heavily, whether you do ayahuasca, whether it's mushrooms, LSD, people come back and say something told me every single thing is connected yeah, yeah. you know and, and even when you're talking about the oak tree there and how the druids spoke about the oak tree and you know the, the roots were connected with the other world and then you have the trunk in this world and then you have the leaves up in the heavens I couldn't stop thinking about Sigmund Freud's model of the human unconscious Hmm. That's the model of the human unconscious. The roots that are underneath, that's the dream world. That's everything we don't know. Then the trunk in the middle, that's our pre-conscious. That's what we can recollect right now. And then the top, the trees, that's our conscious mind. That's what we're thinking about right now. But it's still that same model of everything there underneath the surface. And then you bring in Carl Jung, who was a huge respecter of mythology. You know, Jung was all about the unconscious. That's the, the collective human unconscious that we all share an unconscious mind, all human creatures share an unconscious mind. And this is why mythology all around the world is quite similar. Yeah, isn't it interesting that we took we took Freud on closer to us because he was it was a more easier to understand package. But Way as, rational. Like yeah. Freud is rational and you yeah, can yeah. write it with science, whereas Jung is uh-huh. seen as shut the fuck up, Carl Jung, you lunatic. So yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah, Jung is going to have a, a Jung will have resonances that we we will grow. Our minds will grow to try and understand what Jung Jungian, um, I thought was trying to communicate. I and think quantum physics is what's going to bring it. What, what the, the 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 discoveries that are happening with quantum physics at the moment, and in particular like quantum weirdness and stuff that's really really strange. I think that's going to make Carl Jung's work seem less mental. When he speaks about things like uh, synchronicity and meaningful coincidences and coincidences and things like that, like when you were talking about the Crow Nation, then uh, it just brought me everything you're talking about now. So last time we were on, I was talking about a bit about the connections I had with these Cree elders, these Native American yeah. groups in in Edmonton, Alberta, and how they were making me see the world in an entirely different way. And they were they were reaching out because they said you in Ireland have the same mythology as us that everything mm-hmm. is connected. You need to go into deep you need to go into deeper understanding of it. And you need to, yes, of course, follow what I'm talking about, follow the scholars, what they're doing. But actually, you need to go out into the land and either breathe or meditate or take mushrooms and find that wisdom. But then since we've been talking, 
I've I've like had an even more profound experience by going to spend time with Native from Amer- sorry about Aboriginal elders. In I Australia. wanted to ask you about this. You've spent yeah. time in Australia recently, and I'm mad to hear what happened. Yeah, like almost everything we have talked about so far. In other words, about the holy wells or the water under the sea, or the tree under the land, and the importance of trees. The the um the Aboriginal elders were telling me the same things in their culture. So wow. there's a thing called the Irish Aboriginal Festival that happens every maybe two years in Fremantle, just north of, or, mm. or just outside Perth. I've been there, and, yeah, it's a lovely place. Oh yeah, yeah. And it's run by, uh, it's called Kidogo Hand in Hand Festival, run by this woman, jo- Joanne Robertson. And she's been working, she's had a good art gallery, so she's been working in Aboriginal artists for 25, 30 years. Mm-hmm. And she decided she could see all of these connections mythologically and culturally between Irish people and Aboriginal people from way, way back. But also, mm-hmm. this, you know, in the even the last two hundred years, the interconnections, both positive and negative, that the Irish and Aboriginals mm-hmm. set up. So she wants to have this event, this uh, event, to sort of to recognise that. Now, in some ways, you could say there can be no connection between Irish and Aboriginals because Irish and Aborig- Aboriginal culture goes back sixty five thousand years mm-hmm. of continuous stories, continuous culture. Where Ireland, quite you know, isolated, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so Ireland, you know, what? I mean, we're the, the Bronze Age people. We're, our culture goes back four, four and a half thousand years. Neolithic going back six, six and a half thousand years. So the first hunter-gatherers who came here were 10,000 years ago. So, But I go out to Australia last March and I wake up, you know, get a, whatever, an, an, an Emirates flight out, wake up next morning and Joanna's, I'm, I'm in her house and she says, Oman Khan, there's a, an elder on the veranda waiting to speak to you. And so Dr. Noel Nanup, one of the key elders of the Nungar nation, of the Nungar Bujar, of this play, of this, the, the traditional placeholders, people of Perth and Fremantle, is there. And he just wants to tell me things. He had heard I was coming to Ireland, and he, uh, to Australia, and he wanted to give me an insight. And so he says, we're looking out over the bay. And he says, look out there. He says, there are three... Um, estuaries out underneath the ocean there. And he says, I know that because my people who are here uh, 40,000 years ago, when it was still land, remembered it. Oh my good fucking God. And again, only in the last 10, 15 years have the geological departments of the local universities gone out, done underwater surveying and realized exactly what the Aboriginals people were saying was true was there. And then he started, he took me to a river and he started, he started talking about the waggle. And the waggle is the river serpent that carved out the river. Um, and it went the whole way down to Badandi, to Wadandi region, to the sea and salt people down in Margaret's River, right, whatever, three hours south of Perth. So he, Noel, Dr. Noel Nanup, put me in touch with Dr. Wayne Webb and his son, Zach Webb. Again, other cultural lore, lore keepers, elders of the people of this slightly different, again, a Nungar language, but down in Wadandi country. They started talking about the same waga, the serpent. And they were telling me these stories. A serpent carved out the river and then fought with the sea serpent. I knew these stories because we have the exact same stories in Ireland. In fact, even this oh, new book I'm writing, oh. we talk about the Cuenonach. Cuenonach is the serpent of Loch Derg who carved out the rivers that were, they carved out first the the, um, the the lake and then created this magical hole into the other world and then carved out the rivers. But there's a main story about the Shunan. The Shunan was created by this Ulfeisht. Again, Ulfeisht mm-hmm. means great serpent, who carves out the river of the Shannon, um, gets to Loch Ree, meets some other beasts there and fights so much that they carve out the whole of Loch Ree and then goes down eventually to the sh- to the sea uh, in the in the, the Shannon estuary in County Clare. Um, the exact same story told thousands of miles apart. 
And then they start telling th- me... That's fucking nuts because, like, th- there is no way that Indigenous Australian people and Indigenous Irish people had any physical connection. It's too far apart. Yeah, yeah. So so how is that happening? How is... When, when like, Zach Webb, Dr. Zach Webb tells me about Kurnup. Kurnup is where the ocean meets the sky and it's where the spirits go to rest in between lives. Now, Tiernan Og is often said to be at the end of at the end of Mog Mel. Mog Mel means Mog is a plain mill of honey, the plain of honey. It's basically that golden strip of sea where the sun sets, you know, in the west, and there is this roadway, this trackway of golden light of the setting sun, and that was the road to Tiernan Og, Mog Mel. It's basically the mm-hmm. honey strip, the honey strip that leads to Tiernan Og. So we have Tiernan Og in some stories being on the horizon beyond where the sun sets. And here in Wadandi country in, south, in the south um, west of Western Australia, they have the Karnup, the exact same concept. And every day, at first I couldn't believe it that I was, these elders were reaching out to me and journeying to come and see me. And I am nobody, I'm, you know, I'm a journalist. I don't, I'm not a scholar in anything. They probably have more respect for you than academics, Mancon, because the thing with academics is, is their academics tend to be very tied to their universities and they're scared to talk and they're scared to be creative. And that's no disrespect to academics, but they tend to be, that's too mad, my reputation is on the line. Whereas you're a lay person with a passion, so you're a lot more open. Yeah, you and I can get away with things. Because as you say, we, you and I both know amazing peoples in academia, but they wouldn't dare write no. about some of the things that they'll talk to you about. No. just because. I mean, talking about mushrooms, you know, the shit you're saying there about magic mushrooms. They're just not going to go there because they, they, they will privately. They will. When you're having a coffee with them. Yeah, yeah. But it's like, I can't put my reputation in my university on the line for this type of carry on, you know? Yeah, because there are people ready to bring them down. There's only a certain amount of yeah. tenure in universities and it's easy if you, yeah, you put yourself too far above the par- parapet, isn't it? They say medicine advances only with the death of every old, great old professor. Once yeah. an old professor dies, then there's room, just like in a forest, you know, the woodland survived once one of these great old trees fall down. And then they've provided enough nourishment in the soil, in the academia as well, for these new ones to, to the flourish mm-hmm. but as you say so like um i was so you know what was interesting was every day like i i, I mean i made i've made tv programs about you know about south america about india about africa but mm-hmm. all over the world but i had no idea that there was continuous culture that goes back sixty-five thousand years anywhere on the world let alone in australia it's the only Just thing we a talk. quick a quick question there mancon right um did the, were these people who had writing or or was this transmitted via oral culture it was oral culture. It was oral culture. It was in stories, and the you know the 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 elders, the the lore keeper keepers were able to keep this information alive. Um, so there, mm-hmm. there was there was no there was no um, writing, and uh, you know in fact only only in the last six months there's been new archaeological finds that are showing potential a hundred that the, the culture goes back one hundred and twenty thousand years. That that's oh a very God. preliminary you know for the moment. It's just one site. Just one other thing I'd like you to a- ask you about as well, Mancon, because you spoke about this on about three podcasts ago with me, but I want to know if you encountered it this time. And it's something that to me is so alien, I, I have difficulty getting my-, my head around it. But as I understand it, don't uh, Indigenous Australian people, have they got a way of walking the landscape whereby the very act of walking the landscape that, that somehow they can retain knowledge using that way of walking or that they're able to retain stories, massive stories through a way of walking. 
Exactly, yeah. And as you said, I've talked about that to you and I've written about it and I had no understanding of the profundity of it it's, until I went out there. I mean, we're, I'm, my head is too Western. My head is too fucking Western to get that. I know, but Blind Boy, if you went out there, if you, I don't know, if you saw the things and if you experienced the things I've experienced, um, first, they're called the song lines, you know, yeah. and they are this way of encoding information about everything, mainly about how the landscape, the information that you need about the landscape if you're traveling across it. In other words, where the water holes are. Like, mm -hmm. it was so interesting. Me talking to them about our sacred wells and them talking about their water holes and how sacred the water holes are. And so much of Aboriginal art, it's about symbols showing you where the water holes are. And of course, the first thing... And I, I get them, water holes are a bit more important in Australia than they are in Ireland, I'd imagine, like for, for survival. Exactly, exactly. So the first thing that the colonizers did often, they polluted the water holes. Fucking gowls. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, for the crack or, or just out of ignorance? No, no, for the crack to know how do we kill off a people, just pollute the water holes. In the, in the same Christ. In the same way, as this, there's this great American academic on, holy well, on Irish holy wells. She has a book coming out this year called Dr. Celeste Ray. She's over in America. But she's realizing, do you know the way... You, any river we were so proud of our water mills in Ireland so there's either mm -hmm. there'll be flax mill or flour mill or anything else um, a lot of those were an attempt to to basically pollute and industrialize the sacred wells our, you know our, our river source wow. our wells were the sacred so yeah put in a fucking industrial plant basically put in intel besides you know uh, uh, the Liffey put in a water a mill or a, a um, you know a lot because a, a, a paper mill was a, always a polluting thing um, so sometimes it was just, it happened. The water source was there and they needed, they used that as electric, you know, to let, to use that as a power source for industrial, for industrialization of products. But also there was an idea, let's take away the sacredness of this well or this water source by putting. Let's rationalize the river. I mean, that's what you're doing. Let's rationalize this. What does that river do? It spins a, a fucking big cog and that's where bread comes from. That's exactly. And, yeah, and, yeah. and, and it's owned by somebody. This is capital. Just like we've dammed all of the sacred rivers in Ireland, all of the rivers that were the mm -hmm. goddesses in, fee, in in water form, in physical form, put a dam on it, stop stop the energy going through. Um, and with all those plans to, you know, to, to take the Shannon, take all the water of the Shannon and bring it up to Dublin, just strip mm -hmm. the power from it. But anyway, and, you know, well, um, so I, so the song lines, as you say, is these, the, 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 the lore of local place that was encoded into these songs that were sung as the people as the people moved across the land. And not only does it tell about where the, where the water holes are, but it tells about geological happenings that would have happened thousands of years ago, thousands of, hundreds of thousands of years ago. It tells about different berries and different, different berries and flowers and roots that are available in whatever season. So, it, you know, mm -hmm. the, the Aboriginals have a different season. They either break it up into six or eight seasons um, of the year, and then each season would have a different color connected to it. And each color will have a different wind and different plants. That, so once you know the, the once you know any element of the sea of the of the the system, whether either the the songs or the food or the seasons, they're all so tied in together that you are entirely looked after. And that is all really encoded in these songs. And I mean, so many of the song lines have been have been have been have died have died off. But the elders I was meeting, particularly like the role of the art, like the art is so important, you know, mm -hmm. Aboriginal art that sells for millions in New York galleries. That's another way of encoding the song lines. So the song lines were sung. They were also encoded in rock art. Like there was no such thing as art on canvas, obviously. You didn't have canvas yeah. until we came along. So it was always rock art um, to give the information. But again, 
the reason we you so and I, these weren't just pretty pictures. No, no. They, I mean, and the symbols on those pictures are identical to the symbols you find in Newgrange and on rock art in Ireland. Now, Fuck me. most likely they had different meanings to those symbols, but maybe they didn't. Because, like, when we look at all of the lozenges and the scrolls and the coils in in the, the, the rock spirals, art, the spirals in Irish art, we find it hard to know what they mean. We have to come up with different, you know, ideas of what they might. But Aboriginals know what their rock arts mean, what their symbols mean. So, I, and, and nobody, like, nobody has done that correlation, that uh, comparing the two yet, because no one in the Australia yet. There is, in Australia, there are anthropologists and archaeologists. So archaeologists yeah. are looking at the rock art and anthropologists telling the story. In no university in Australia are the anthropologists and the archaeologists in the same department. They're just, on purpose, they're dividing them. And the minute you put the rock art and the knowledge that's encoded in the land with the myths, everything opens up. But in the same in Ireland, nobody is really connecting, you know, to a great degree, the, all of the archaeological evidence in Ireland with the mythological, because we dismissed the mythological. It was all mm-hmm. make-believe. It was all useless. So what's going to happen is by, you know, amazing developments have been done in Ireland in archaeology in the last 20, 30 years, particularly because of the building of the roads and all of the, the destruction of the ancient science by the roads, but also the excavation that that's led to. But no one has tied that up to see what information from all this masses of information we have about the archaeology of Ireland, what new insights could we get by comparing that with mythology. Like, I spoke recently to a fella called Anthony Murphy, mm-hmm. who he, he operates a around yeah. Newgrange. Yeah. Yeah. And Anthony is, again, he's a lay person. And his whole thing is, he, he's an astronomer. He loves astronomy. And he correlates astronomy with geography, with ancient tombs to bring them together. But straight up, he said to me, like, the academics come to him. The academics from the universities come to him and speak to him, but they could never say what he's saying because it's seen as too mad. He's mixing too many different genres together to come to answers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And luckily, there's, so that first elder I met in Australia, Dr. Noel Nanup, he is considered to be the prime expert on the stars, on the whole astronomy of Western Australia. And even the, the main planetarium will have him in maybe once a month or a few times a month to give the talk. So the astronomer will give their official limited view. And mm-hmm. then in comes Dr. Noel Nanup, who will talk about the star. You know, what's unique about the way that Aboriginal people saw the nighttime star sky was that, you know, we look at it from sky, from star to star, and mm-hmm. we make patterns from those stars. They look at the space in between. So they look at what's not there. So we're looking wow. at the white lights. They're looking at the black. And when they see the black in their view of the, of the, of the Milky Way, they see emu. They see dark emu basically this big black shape that looks for all like a dark emu when you see it. And it's just, it's the reverse way. It may, it's basically that's looking mad, yeah. you know, at what, it's what, not, what is not there than what's there. And really, that's what I had to get used to. So, I mean, I had a few enough insights in this Irish Aboriginal Festival, but when I was went up north, up to the Kimberley and up to the Great Sandy Desert and the Tanara, De- the Tanara Desert, that's when my mind was blown up. Because before I went, you know, a lot of these places, there's no roads. It's just sand. I had to get, we, me and Joanna had to rent a, a, like a, a really good Land Rover with sand mats, with extra diesel tanks, with a, with a satellite phone, with anti-snake venom, and just go up into the wilderness where we had been invited by elders who some of these, some of these communities, they never allow white people in. You know, there'll be a mm-hmm. few government teachers and all, but otherwise there's a big sign you're only allowed into this community is if you've been well, if we have invited you, you know, mm-hmm. and stop mm-hmm. at, at the place. Uh, and so, yeah. Um, 
but th this is where these communities are where they're keeping the information live. So if you go down, if your only experience is meeting an, an Aboriginal person in a city, they're the ones who've already been forced into a city for some reason. They came down because they were sick, they needed a job, they have something. And the minute an Aboriginal person is off country, is not connected with the land anymore, the power is gone from them, the life force is gone. Is this the belief system of the indigenous people? Is this what they would say about themselves? That's what they would say about themselves. But you see it. Like, there was one point I was in, we went to Balgo, and Balgo was an old former mission that was brought, set up by missionaries to try and, you know, bring in the indigenous people from the wild, the aboriginals from the wilds of the great sandy desert. As it, it's worth noting, noting as well to say to people, legally in Australia, uh, indigenous aboriginal people in the eyes of the government, were considered animals up until the 1970s. Exactly. Yeah, they were. They were. They. They. They were under the Department of Fisheries and Nature. Yeah, which exactly. is just fucking disgusting. Yeah, yeah. But there you have it. But yet, you know, something key is happening in November of this year. In November of this year, there is going to be a vote, a referendum in Australia about the voice, whether to give Aboriginal people the voice um, in Parliament for the first time, and it's a key moment. You can imagine. It is no, it is in no way guaranteed that this is going to go through in Australia, and Ireland. We have an enormous role to play. Like we have every family in in Ireland has relations in Australia. Of course, and we have this almost obligation, this duty to now become aware of Aboriginal issues between now and autumn. There's no, I don't think the date has been fixed yet. But also healing because the Irish Catholic Church did a lot of damage to Indigenous Australian people. They really did. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we were not only, we were involved with massacres too, where these mm -hmm. are, let's say we came out, let's say we came out with a sad story, we came out on, you know, as, as criminals, victims of Britain. But when we eventually were freed from prison, men, you know, would set up a homestead somewhere. And if there were Aboriginals there, it was massacres. They'd wiped them out and buried them in holes. And Irish were involved with that too. So there's, mm -hmm. a, there's a dark legacy. And still today, like, you know, Perth is beautiful, as you saw. Fremont is beautiful. But every person you and I saw, you did a gig there. You did, yeah. So in, yeah. And, and I did shows there. And I was invited out. We were all under the pocket of the mining company, you know? Every ticket, you know, 80% yeah. of the tickets that you were, of the people who bought tickets to you were being paid directly or indirectly through the mining company. Like every mm -hmm. coffee shop, every restaurant, they're only there. Western it's Australia. It's like a company town. It's a company town, exactly. And they're all, this idea, you know, isn't fly in, fly out. They're all on these small short-term contracts. They go into Fremantle and Perth to, to let their hair down for a weekend or something or a week, yeah. week off, one week off or three weeks off. And then they're shipped back up. They're flown back up north again to, the, to these mining places. So if my first two days in Australia were just these elders coming to meet me and to try and tell me their way of talking, seeing the world prepare me particularly for what was going to happen up north and to do ceremony on me because there was going to be spirits up in, in the north that they say mm -hmm. I wouldn't be able to deal with on my own. I need their protection. When you went to there, when you went went into the there area, the indigenous uh, the outback. Exactly, the outback. Yeah. Um, they want to prepare. But then so that was the first two days and then day three of this Irish Aboriginal festival or, which happens around St. Patrick's Day where the Irish people were there because it was a Sunday so they were off work. Okay. And the stories I was hearing, there was one the I was meeting was mainly the cultural people. So the people who were who were out of UCC or UC or NUIG doing haven't done anthropology, archaeology. Okay. So the mining companies mm -hmm. are now having to hire huge amounts of Irish archaeologist students to go out and to be the forerunners. To and there's now a rule, you know, there was this terrible the, the Dukon Gorge, it was a terrible destruction done by Rio Tinto of a gorge, of an A of a many thousand year old sacred gorge. Um, uh, 
few years ago in, in Australia. And ever since then, they now they have to do archaeological and anthropological research before they go in and mine anything. Okay, so they need loads mm -hmm. of, of of young archaeologists and anthropologists. And I was meeting these people, a young bloke from Roscommon, and he said like he had been out. He had brought the elders of a particular community out to see where the local mining company was. And you know, when I'm talking about mining, it's everything. It's from copper, it's iron, it's lithium, it's emeralds, it's diamonds, everything is out there. This is know? why Australia is rich, like, yeah. Exactly. The natural resources there is mad. That's right. So, there's this one Roscommon lad, anyway, he had been out to bring these elders out to see where their next area of the mining was going to be a few weeks or a few months before. And then just about five days before I met him, he had brought these same elders out in a lovely white air-conditioned ute out along the track to see uh, the post-mining uh, landscape. And mm -hmm. post-mining landscape, everything was gone. All of the sacred rock art, all of the sacred sites, these ritual places had been destroyed. And so the elder broke into tears and said, stop, stop the car. I can't go on. I can't go on. But the elder had brought three other members of his community to support him. They, they pulled over and they said, you have to go on. You are the, you are the eyes of our community. We have somehow, we, we have, you know, this has been destroyed on our watch. We are the, we are the gatekeepers of our sacred lands that have been kept alive for whatever, 40, mm -hmm. 50, 60,000 years. We need to see, we need to report it back. And so this bright young 24-year-old Roscommon man who was on way more money than he could ever have in his life before was utterly shook when he told me. He was, he was white. Basically, he had witnessed, he had been involved in the destruction of the sacred landscape of people. Mm -hmm. And that's what, that's what they did. Another woman told me she had just helped, you know, build a new road into an area. You build a new road into an area, you get tourists coming in, you get all the sacred art slowly gets either taken away and stolen and brought back to the cities. But, but he, here's the thing, Mancon. Like... Is is if 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 an elder if if an indigenous elder says you can't build there, Mister Mining Company, will he actually be listened to? So they have a thing called his native titles. So they do control their own lands, um, and so yeah, in one way they have control. But all the mining company needs to do is go to another elder. These are communities that don't have strength yeah, anymore. I... Alcoholism, drug abuse is so rife. That, and people are absolute desperate. I'd say there's real dirty shit going on. I'd say that, like, I don't, corporations are not nice people. And when corporations want something done, they they will find a way to do it illegally. Nothing stops it. Like, the, it's so easy to pick off the elders. You know, the, the, so many of them have such severe health problems that, um, you know, they're either desperate for money, they need to get somewhere, or they have a child. And like, the tragedy. So they've been marginalised. Marginalised yeah, in a way that their backs are against the wall. Beyond marginalised, yeah. Like so, I I went into some very very dark and just communities that were in real real despair. But I went into only one. This is the one that says we do not allow white people in. You know, you had to have a permission. This was Yeely between Fitzroy Crossing and um, Paul's Creek up in up in the Kimberley up on the way towards the Pilbara, and. Uh, I went into this community and it was, it was first signs I was hopeful. I thought these people are pretty healthy and they had an amazing school system and trying to get good food and trying to get education. Still in that place that everybody is looking out for each other and everyone's got each other's back, you still see this, a white ute will turn up, a, a, a pickup will turn up of a mining company. And it's a, they're all kind of, you know, they're spread out communities. So they will, this white ute will turn up and it'll be one man with a form and with a pen and trying to get one elder to sign. And all he needs to do is get one elder to sign in this incredibly healthy community, wherever, where alcohol is banned, where people are generally in good health. Um, but if, if they can get in that easily to a place like that, you know, doesn't it? They've, in the places where like 
in Halls Creek, we were sort of advised not to go to Halls Creek because there were every night the Aboriginals come out with spears and were spearing each other, with fighting, just because things had broken down so much. But on a Friday night in Halls Creek, the mining companies come with their royalty checks. So all of these elders mm-hmm. have a native title. They're entitled to this land, so the mining companies have to pay them royalty. On a Friday, you'll get, you know, maybe a diamond, a copper, titanium, lithium, whatever as miners will come. They'll drop 30 grand in that town and they paid them just outside the pub, in the one pub. So the pub dr- will get 30 grand that weekend. All the money goes directly through there. And then if anyone wants, if any of the mining company wants signatures, mm-hmm. they just there on Monday or Tuesday morning where, you know, they've lost all their money again. There's, the solution for the oldest continuous culture in the world can't be within Australia because everyone I met, including me, including you, we benefited from that when we went there. My flights were paid for that. My tickets, everything was indirectly or directly through mine. All the universities I visited, they're all being sponsored by the mine. So the only chance is if the world says, wait there, there's only one culture in the world that has a continuous culture of 65,000 years, still alive with all of this knowledge. We all need to work and pay the price to protect Aboriginal culture. And so that's why the voice is a key element. And that's why, like, since coming home, I've now committed myself. I'm writing a book about the links between Irish and Aboriginal culture. I'm going to make a TV series about links between Irish and Aboriginal culture. And I'm going to try and get get one of those big international, the big collections of Aboriginal art that were done in Sydney, curated exhibitions that sometimes tour outside to London or San Francisco or to LA or somewhere. I'm going to try and get one of those to Ireland too. Because only once we see the art can we then begin the process of understanding the song lines. And once you understand the song lines, these stories and songs that encode all of the wisdom, both in the, of this realm and the realms beyond for the people, do you get a sense of, wow, the, the, she's the wisdom and the wealth um, and their connection with spirit and the magical things. I was told if I went up north, I would encounter the spirits. Magical things would happen. That mm-hmm. Things that I could never again explain to anyone would happen. And like, without doubt, they did. Without doubt. Um, it's like one, so one reason that we got up to this place that you never, you know, get access to is because Kenneth Dawson, who is the Guniandi lore man of this community of Yili, Guniandi is a, is a particular small group of people who managed to keep their knowledge alive. And for him, his totem animal is uh, the white owl because his great grandfather, mm-hmm. his grandfather was the, no, his great grandfather was the white owl. And he knew his great-grandfather. And so the totem that his great-grandfather left him was the White Owl. And so the one time that Kenneth Dawson came down to, to my friend Joanne Roberts, who has this Kidogo art house in, 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 on the beach there, in Bader's Beach in Fremantle, which is where the Irish Aboriginal Festival happens. And the one time Kenneth Dawson came down, they, so they looked up in the, in the trees above and they saw a White Owl. And no one had ever seen a White Owl in Fremantle before. They're just not there. And mm-hmm. Kenneth says, oh, no, no, that's my great-grandfather. Yeah, or my great grandfather. He follows me when I'm on spiritual business. So fucking hell. Joanna just said, "Okay," just didn't know it. And anyway, Joanna and I, we we fly up three and a half hours up to Kununaro, hire this jeep. You know, it costs us a fortune with the sand map mats and the and the satellite phone and the and the snake bite venom. Go drive for hours and hours across the desert to get to Balgo. Then, you know, then like twenty hours is like long, long journeys. Get up to Yili at night to this the road that leads into an off-track road that eventually leads you down into the community. And we stopped dead straight on the muddy road at night because there's a white owl right in the middle of the mud track. And so we stopped just in time. And the white owl, just as we stopped, it rises up above our, above our um, windscreen and over our head. 
And so we we ring Ken, Ken Dawson. We say, Ken, we've just been stopped. We were arriving at your place, but a white owl was there. And he said, oh yeah, no, that's okay. That's my great-grandfather. That's you. You're being welcomed on land. You're, you're, you'll be safe. Wow. You're welcome to country. So we thought nothing about it. Went down, spent a magical few days hunting with them, telling stories, sharing knowledge, watching their paint, learning, learning the whole time. And as we were leaving again, again at night, back on that mud road, and there's the white owl right in the middle of it. And so we pull up and the white owl watches us, looks in her eyes and then goes beyond the hedgerow, the, 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 um, the, the dashboard and we drive off. We then have like an eight hour drive on in dark, dark roads to back to Kununaru. And as we're going, the first five miles, we encounter 27 white owls on the road, on the road, going, flying above us. We're constantly having to start, stop, start, stop. And everyone I've asked since then, they said, no, that's an impossibility. There's no, no one has ever seen 27 white owls. They could, couldn't have happened. So had Joanna not been there, I would have been sure I'd made up the entire thing. But something profound happened that I'm still having to deal with. And again, it all ties in with fucking Carl Jung. Like Jung, like what I'm trying to get at is, is when you say, Jesus, the, the Aboriginal mythology and Irish mythology is so similar. Carl Jung would say, yeah, that's the human collective unconscious. Also, what Carl Jung would say is when when you live your life with an openness to if when you live your life with an openness to, to psychic energy like that, to, to when you live your life with an openness to your dream world, then synchronicity will occur. Meaningful coincidences will occur like like that, like the owls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The psychic That's... energy. Now, like. Young claimed that when him and Freud would argue about this, the books would explode in the fucking... He said the books used to explode in their shelves, you know, and that's when most people go, right, well, I'm not listening to Carl Young anymore. He's mad. But I get what you're saying there from a Jungian perspective. Mm -hmm. Completely, you know? Like even every time people had to do rituals with me each time. So when I was in first in um, Fremantle, they had to tell the spirits I was there and welcome me to the country. And when I went down to Wandandi, another elder did. Then up in the north, in one place, I had a um, mosquito family, a great w- woman, did these rituals. And every time they'd do them, they'd say these words, they'd, rub, they'd get me to rub the sweat of my body into sand or into stone or into plant, mm-hmm. and then to put that into water. Um, and uh, like they said to me, okay, once we've done this, once the spirits, we're waiting until the spirits have heard, have seen you, welcomed you, and then the ritual ends. And they said, when it'll happen, let's say when I was by the river, they said, you're going to, a gust of wind is going to come up the river and you're going to feel it. When I did it down with Zach Webb, there by the tide, the shore, they said, okay, step back now. There's going to be a big wave is going to come up and wash. And that means you're, that's a welcome from the sea that you're welcome in this area. And if you don't get that, they said, we can't allow you on country. We can't allow mm-hmm. you even in the community. And they said, let's say even if you're particularly at night when you're gathered around the fire, if you leave the fire for any reason, you need to tell one of us that you're leaving. We need to ask the spirits or we need to accompany you. And even the only reason I got up to Balgo, like a lot of uh, people won't go near this community in the Great Sandy Desert because of the strength of the spirits. So I had a man telling elders, particularly helicopter. Helicopter is the last elder. He's the, he's, he's the last of the, was the only one of the first contact people I met. So first mm-hmm. contact people, he was the first of his people to ever meet white, uh, white people. So he mm-hmm. was sickly and his community were out in the desert. They were roaming the desert. And they decided, no, he's too sickly. He won't survive. And they, this, a chop missionary came down with a helicopter and they put him on the helicopter. And so they brought him to Balgo and dropped him there. And 
he, you know, he was the very first of his people. A few then of his aunts and uncles came in later, about 10 years later, I think. But he's now, his art is like, so sells for millions in New York. He's, mm-hmm. he's old. But like his knowledge, that idea of, you know, he's seeing a spirit world before he's seeing a physical world. But that's interesting when you tie that back with how they look at the stars. Seeing a spirit war- world before you see the physical world. And then you look up at the stars and you see the darkness before you look at the stars. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seeing the beyond. And we think our ancestors in Ireland saw that. That's why, you know, we know that the Tir Nuno, all these other worlds were just as real to them as this real world. And that, I believe that was right up until the 1930s. Because again, you can see it in the school's collection. The older people there in every community in Ireland were able to talk where the magical thresholds were, where the fairy folk or the otherworldly beings came through in, you know, in their locality. So that was my chat with the magnificent Mancon Magan. Um, that was that was tremendous fun. He's such a curious individual. He's so passionate about what he does. He's so passionate in the way that he speaks, and I adore chatting to him. So check out his book, Wolf Men and Water Hounds, which you can pre-order. It's out in September. And check out any of his books, or listen to his podcast, The Almanac of Ireland. And I'll catch you next week for a hot take. Don't know what it's going to be about. We'll figure that out in the meantime. And you go. You go and you rub a dog. Genuflect to a swan. Blow kisses at a pine marten. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.